Hi, I'm Natalika Sika, and this is 52 Weeks, 52 Books, 52 Women, the podcast. A book of personal essays is an ambitious undertaking. The writer is concerned with the particulars of her life, but also is writing about things that are universal enough that they resonate with the reader. It's a fine balancing act, and it's one that Sachi Cole has undertaken in her book, One Day We'll All Be Dead and None of This Will Matter. Sachi Cole joins me now. Welcome. Thank you. It's really great to have you. Um, I was really taken by your book of essays uh, for a number of reasons, um, particularly the range. Um, I wanted to start with the stuff that was really, I thought, very funny um, and things that everyone could uh, recognize and sort of imagine for themselves, too. I mean, you talk about things as varied as uh, fear of flying, about shopping for clothes you think that are the most perfect thing in the world that you must have, and then there's a whole psychology around clothes that you examine. Um, you talk about getting a bikini wax, uh, and they're all very funny. Um, when you started thinking about those issues, did you think, I'm going to be funny about them? Uh, no, I don't really think about things like that because I'm not like a well-tuned robot. I wish that I could sort of go into things and say like, I'm going to be funny about this because my job would be a lot easier. Um, (laughs) But I think those are things that are inherently funny because they're absurd. And I'm not very good at taking things seriously. I'm not very good at looking at the dramatic part first and then mining for the humor. My instinct is always to go for the laugh and then do the work after. So I think throughout the collection, I worked from the humor and then went backwards. Um, so I think, you know, a lot of times when you write essay collections or when you write anything, frankly, it requires sort of a um, like a punch-up edit where you sort of go through and decide, okay, well, this joke needs to be better and I need to add something, you know, kind of funny here. I don't work like that. I work with, I'm going to make a bunch of dumb jokes because I'm uncomfortable and then my editor would go in and say, great, but... Um, so it worked. I'm very glad it worked, but... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, that doesn't always work for social situations, I'll say that much. Right. Now, did you um, set off to particularly write a book of essays, or was this a combination of some things you'd written um, already, you're a culture writer at BuzzFeed, and you've written in other places, or was it something that you conceived of particularly for the book of essays? No, I, I when I initially sort of wrote the proposal, it was going to be essays, but I think they were going to be a lot shorter. I think they were intended to be really slight. And again, because I go for sort of an, uh, the joke first, it was going to be just humorous essays about things that I hated. And I, I think that made sense for me at the time. As I started working with my editors, I realized how much more range maybe I wanted to bring to it. And that's when we got to, you know, 10 essays that were kind of focused and had um, probably a lot more depth to them than I was going to be able to accomplish on my own. Well, I think the range really is uh, wonderful. You move, um, and I want to get to some of the issues that you write about. Um, You know, the first one I wanted to talk to you about was you're a Canadian Indian. Um, I am a American British Indian. Uh, We may have have some things in common. your parents emigrated to a mostly white suburb of Calgary. Um, And I'm curious, what did you know about your Indianness growing up? Um, I mean, not a lot. Like, I don't think I, I don't think kids go through the world knowing that they're different until somebody tells them. So I don't think I really put it together until 
um, until probably like I don't know the second or third grade. Mm-hmm. Like it just didn't it just didn't didn't matter for a, for a minute. Um, and I also started to understand it in the context of how my friends' parents talked to me because adults talk to uh, you know non-white kids differently than they talk to white kids. That sort of gave me this idea. And I knew that there were things that my family did that other families didn't do, but I didn't. I didn't think about them. You know, I wasn't sort of like, imagine how morose of a child you need to be to go around and be like, what is my existence and who am I? <laughs> that, isn't, <laughs> that isn't very conducive for the six-year-old brain, but yeah, not a ton. I mean, my parents spoke to me in English and my brother talked to me in English and we didn't have a ton of family in Canada. We had some family friends. We had about five family friends friend families, like groups of people. Right. Um, but, you know, I found it like I, I, I didn't I didn't find that I was, you know, running into a lot of brown people and thinking, oh, you're like me. That didn't come until mm-hmm. later. Yeah, I can um, sort of empathize with that. And you I was interested in your description. Um, Indian parents, when they first moved to North America, pushed towards whiteness, towards assimilation to survive and thrive which is something I felt about my parents who moved to London in the 1960s. And I guess that's something you really only realize with the passage of time. When you look back, you're not really seeing that at that moment. Mm -hmm. Um, Or do you see it now? Do you see a difference in the way, you know, later immigrants who've come um, have learned to live in North America? Yeah, I mean, I think it varies by family. And I think it depends on where you end up getting settled. And I think, um, you know, talking to my dad as I, as an adult and knowing that he had, I mean, he is a, he is a very narrow view of India, I think for even an Indian, he didn't like it. And I don't, Mm -hmm. I don't know what the country did to him, but he he just really didn't like it. And so I think for him, it was this thing of, he didn't really want to be there. And it's, it's such a it's such a glorious thing to be able to like get residency in a country like Canada when you come from a country like India. It's so hard. Um, and so when he got it, it was like this real thing of like, oh my god, that's amazing. And you want to fit in. Mm-hmm. So I don't begr- I don't begrudge them the choices. I don't know if my mom had that same pull. My mother is like the brownest person in our family. Um, but I think she would have stayed, right? Like I think had my dad been cool with living in India, I think she would have been happy to do it. Right. Um, but it's weird now, you know, because they've been in Canada longer than they've been in India. Yeah. So it's this weird thing where it's like, well, I still don't think of them as like Canadians. I, like it doesn't really make any sense to me and I don't know how to articulate that, but there's something very foreign to me about saying like, oh yeah, my parents are Canadian. Not really. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> they're kind of they're kind of in this awful in between state where nothing really makes any sense. And I've talked to my parents about, you know, when when I moved out and my brother, you know, was settled. Obviously, I, I asked them if they were, you know, ever going to go back, and they're like, for what? Because in the time that it takes, and I think this happens for a lot of immigrants, especially from India, you move, and then everything changes back home. People die, and people, other people move, and you know, people get married, things shift. Yeah. The economy changes and your house changes and, and what you're comfortable with shifts a lot. And right. So then, it's not the place you left. No, no. And then you're like, I guess I could go back, but I don't really know what that place is anymore. Yeah, I think I definitely see that with my family and many yeah. other families that we know. Now, you say that you're writing this book probably for your young niece. Mm-hmm. Um, 
who is mixed race. Uh, uh, your brother married a non-Indian, uh, if I remember correctly. And this opens the door to discussion about what I call colorism in the Indian community. Mm-hmm. It's something that I've experienced. Um, is that something that you've experienced? And what, what, what do you sort of want to impart to your niece about being this child who is, um, you know, has a, a culture that is a mixed culture? Yeah. I mean, I've experienced it in like the, I guess the best way you could because I'm fair. So me too. (laughs) To a lot of other brown people, I'm like, I'm a, I'm glorious and my parents are lucky because I'm fairer than my dad. Um, and my mom, and you know, even, even looking at my parents' marriage, it's like, well, good for him, right? Because he married a fair girl. And my brother turned out extremely fair. Like my brother is very much white passing. And then he married a white lady. And even though that was, you know, it had its own complications and they had this kid who was, you know, blue eyed with, you know, pinkish skin and light brown hair, um, you know, who's very thin and sort of has these white, she, she looks like a white person if you didn't know better. And so all of, all of that is going to play into, in, into her favor. She will benefit from that. But I don't think that means that she shouldn't be aware of it. That's a hard thing to talk to a seven-year-old about. I haven't quite figured out the language (laughs) to explain her own privilege to her. But um, she is also still at that age where she doesn't really, she's not, she doesn't notice that there's anything different until you say it. Right. I always wonder when, when kids know for themselves, you know, they only know because parents, uh, well, an adult tells you, yeah. yeah. And I mean, she she hasn't really. I mean, she certainly has said things before that sound self-loathing. Where she's talked about, and this is in the book where she talks about brown people, and you know, this was years ago, um, but they were poor and they smelled bad. And I was like, who who said this to you? Because there's mm-hmm. no way that you've just developed it, and you certainly know that you're a brown person on some level. So, I mean, I think just keep just trying to create this base of like, I hope you're aware of how people are going to treat you differently, even if it's positively, even if you get more. Right. Um, But I mean, that's, it's a long road for her. And she's also in this really funny position too, because she's growing up um, in the same city I did, but having a very different upbringing than I did. You know, her mother's white and my brother isn't exactly like an integrated member of the Brown community. So it's not like she's, Mm -hmm. you know, an immersive experience with a Brown father, but my parents are, you know, very involved and very pushy, and <laughs> she's getting a lot from them. Oh, well. So she's also sort of growing up in this fugue state. I'd be really curious uh, when she is old enough to sort of read the book and understand it, what she thinks of it. Um, yeah, I don't know. My sister-in-law bought her a copy to give her when she's 16, but I even, I'm like, that's too early. I'm like, give it to her when I'm dead. I don't need to be around for that. <laughs> Now, um, you know, your uh, background and upbringing is not the only thing you write about in the book. And um, I thought some of the most re- powerful and revealing essays that you were writing about were about being a woman on the Internet. Um, and, you know, you write for BuzzFeed. You're of an age that sort of came of age during the Internet um, and social media. And you've been the target of very vicious trolling. Um, I'm wondering if you could sort of talk about that a little bit, sort of what precipitated it and what it made you think about um, when this was happening. Um, what precipitated the harassment? The, 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 the harassment, yeah. Oh, I mean, my existence precipitates the harassment. 
like I don't, I don't focus too much on the individual occurrences because they are not relevant. So really all so, that I think that matters is it's, it's a, it's a flare up that happens when people, there's a confluence of me speaking and saying something that doesn't tie up with what people consider is acceptable because they want women and they want brown women to be quiet and they want them to be meek. Um, and then people also notice that I'm not white and they notice that I'm a human female and that I'm not rail thin. You know, it's this weird cross section of a bunch of things that sort of happen at the same time. Um, I'm never surprised. I, I maybe I used to be, but I'm not in the last four years. I have not been surprised once because it doesn't matter. <laughs> it just like I I went on um, I went on a CBC show a little while ago and I talked a bunch about racism in Canada and I talked a bunch about colorism and shadism and then I got put on this neo-Nazi website because they said it was hypocritical for me to be on the CBC and also talk about racism. Like it doesn't make any sense. Right. I don't, I don't experience shock anymore. So you uh, experienced this kind of, um, you know, response in the social space because a, you're a woman and B you're a woman of color. Mm -hmm. Um, So it's a double whammy. Um, And I think it's something that probably, I, I, I hope that when people, read your book, they'll just understand how terrible it is. Um, Because I think there is a little bit of a sense of dismissiveness of, oh, it's only crazy people on the internet. Um, Now, I love what you actually also talk about um, that, you know, I think is a real issue of who is on uh, social media and how they are treating other people and the anonymity of it that allows them to do this. You know, you're the generation that grew up with social media as part of daily expression. Um, and people not as well versed in today's tools think that it's the tools that has made us worse as a society. And right. you disagree with that. Um, no, of course not. People have been bad forever. Forever. I mean, if it were true that, like, white supremacy exists only because of Twitter, that would not explain the entirety of history. Like, it, right. doesn't, it doesn't explain the the rest of um, the world. It doesn't explain all the, the decades of us not having access to these things. It's not true. I think what it's done is it's created pathways for you to find people. And that's good and bad, right? Because it means mm-hmm. that people have access to finding me. I don't know if I would have been successful in an age when I didn't have accessibility to the internet. I'm not sure, honestly. Um, but it also means like, I know a couple white supremacists by name. I didn't know that, you know, a couple of years ago. And like current ones, ones that are alive and live in my city. That, right. That's something that I sort of have to contend with that's very different. But the, it's not, it's not, the tools are flawed, admittedly. Twitter is broken and it's a garbage system. And I suspect we are all using it because, you know, now it's sort of gotten into this corporate space where we're using it because all of the brands we want to align with are there. I mean, I certainly use it because it's part of my work. Um, but I feel like we're all kind of waiting for something better to come along because we know it sucks. But Twitter didn't invent harassment. It's not new. It's just putting a really great face to it. Now we can see what it looks like, but it, it doesn't necessarily mean things are getting better. I just feel like I'm more tired. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think one of the differences is that now these tools make it easier for people. Um you know, if you were in broadcasting, as I was some time ago, if someone really wanted to complain about what you said or what you wrote, you they would have to 
write a letter, find an address, get a stamp. Um, it's a lot of work. Um, and now there's not quite as much work to be as uh, rude and critical as people are in the social space. Um, and you, uh, you know, some people decide to leave these social spaces. And I think you went off Twitter for like two weeks and then yeah. went back. Um, and was that a sort of screw you? You're not going to silence me? Yeah, or? I mean, I have like a really big ego. I have a really hard time letting other people win. And it's like a sickness and I don't encourage it. And I don't think other people should behave like this, but I'm not good at seeding property. And I very much feel because I grew up on the internet and I sort of had have, have had these spaces for God, 15 years. I've been like playing on social accounts online. That's a long time. That's embarrassing. Don't tell anybody. <laughs> like that's a long time because I've been on it for such a long time, it very much feels like it's mine. And I do not like being told where I can and cannot go. So mm -hmm. even if I don't like a thing, and again, this is my personal flaw, if I don't like something and someone just tells me I can't have it, I am of the type to say, well, I would like it now. And that's sort of what happened. Like, I don't, I don't, I didn't want to be driven out of a, of a space, even though I didn't really love it to begin with, I'm, I would still like to be able to be there. Right. So I don't know what the solution is because now that there are more and more people leaving and, and people meaning like to me, women of color, um, a lot of trans and queer voices don't aren't using it in the same way. Like people that I want to actually hear from and people that speak for communities that we should all, we would all benefit from hearing more from because they're not represented by traditional vessels. Those people are leaving. And that makes this platform even scarier. So I have this really difficult time. Where I'm like, well, if I go, then it just creates more space for somebody mm -hmm. shitty to use it. So I don't know what the solution is. I certainly don't think people should continue using it if they don't like it. And I've done live events where women come up to me and they say, well, you know, I'm using it for work and I hate it. Don't use it. Like, do not right. use it. Delete it. Your career will not suffer. Nothing bad's going to happen to you. Don't play with it. You don't have to do it. I am in a weird position where like half the time I'm on Twitter, it's fun because it's like me and my buds or like this new thing I just read or like we're all making jokes about something stupid Trump said. And then the mm -hmm. other half is like everything is garbage and it's it's like this whole thing's on fire and I'm going to die. So I haven't really, yeah. I haven't totally figured out how to balance that even for myself. Um, but it's, you know, it's fine. We're going to be dead soon. So everything will be okay. <laughs> and indeed, the book is called One Day We Will Be Dead and None of This Will Matter. The author is BuzzFeed culture writer Sanchi Cole. You can read about this and other great books by women at 52 Weeks, 52 Books, 52 Women.com and subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Sanchi, thanks so much for talking to me. Thank you for having me.